Well, come on back and we're going to open up our Bibles to Psalm 132. And we're going to hopefully finish the psalm or songs, excuse me, songs of ascent. And remember, these are the songs that they sang as they were moving up to Jerusalem, city, you know, Zion and the temple areas. And they were moving there because the Old Testament tells them that three times a year, a man would take his family back to Jerusalem for three of the major festivals. And they would sing these songs. And I don't think I've mentioned this yet, uh, but that does a lot of things. I mean, it creates, you know, worship among the family. That's great and first and foremost, isn't it? And uh, you're praising the Lord. That's wonderful. But you know, another thing I think that the Song of Ascents would remind the people is that they are pilgrims. And that the things that people and humans tend to hold on to in their life aren't necessarily the most important. In fact, in 1 Peter, in the New, New Testament, doesn't 1 Peter sort of address that for us in 1 Peter 2, verse 11? Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, and then it says, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. So did you know that you as a born-again, spirit-filled Christian, you're a tourist? No, you're not a tourist. You're a homeowner. No, you're not a homeowner, although you might be those things. The Bible calls you a sojourner and a pilgrim. You're just passing through here which says something to us in another part of the Bible. Don't you remember this? It tells us to lay aside the things that weigh you down so that you could run. You ever tried to run with a 10-pound weight? It's a drag. Or somebody on your shoulders? I mean, you, you get what I'm saying. It's tough and it's difficult. And the Lord says, travel light, because this isn't your home. And I think that's one of the things that the Psalms can do for us, even as it did for them in the times of the temple, is that it can remind us that we are just passing through and we are sojourners and pilgrims and aliens even, and we're to travel light because we have a mission. And the mission, all of us, is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with as many people as the Lord calls us to, to teach them and to baptize them and to disciple them. That's what we're called to do. Jesus told us. And so uh, if that's the case, then the other things that we do in life, although we're responsible and we're good citizens and we do those things, and of course we do them to the best of our ability as worship unto the Lord, but really the mission is until the Lord comes back or till we die here, that we are following together that mission of sharing and loving and discipling and baptizing. Do you get what I'm saying? And so I think that the Psalms can do that for us as well. We're trying through the Psalms to more and more create a culture of worship and praise. And so that's what we've been doing over these several months with these Psalms. And so here we go and we get to Psalm 132. That's where we're going to start tonight. Psalm 132, which is a, another song of ascent. In fact, I know it is because I can read the subscript there. A song of ascents. We started in 120 and we end in 134 with the song of ascents. And this psalm is about David's passion. Everybody in here know who David is? Or was. Do you know David? Oh, nobody knows David. Okay, well, we'll go back and do that. Anyway, David, um, you know, the one who slew Goliath, had five smooth stones, shepherd, spent his life alone and called by God to be the king of Israel, despite the fact that his boss his father-in-law was the king, Saul, and he got into these places where Saul wanted to kill him. But anyway, David eventually becomes king, and his son thereafter, Solomon, 
And David, when he was um, thinking on the Lord, uh, growing in the Lord, had two great ambitions. What were the two passions of David's life? He wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And now that's a fascinating story. If you wanted to do an amazing Bible study for yourself, just go and read the history of what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. What is the Ark of the Covenant? It's that box, that small little longer rectangular looking box with the cherubim wings over top and it resided in the Holy of Holies this box, and you can read all about that in the Old Testament. But what did the ark represent? I mean, the ark in a sense represented God's throne. It says that in a couple places in the Old Testament, but it was also the place, the mercy seat, it was the place that God would meet with its leaders, right, Uh, of Israel. And it was in the Holy of Holies. But Remember, Solomon puts it into the temple that he builds in 2 Chronicles 5. But before that, remember um, the children of Israel as they followed the cloud and they followed the pillar. Do you remember all that? Um, uh, it also went before them, sort of. And they, it went before them, too, as the people crossed over Jordan River. Remember that? And as they entered Cana. And... Some people, because of a couple of references in the Old Testament, believe that the ark was temporarily at a place called Bethel and then at a place called Mitzpah. But remember, in 1 Samuel 1 through 3, it finally rested at Shiloh. Now, this is a fascinating history. I would recommend, honestly, that you get an atlas or a, a Bible atlas and track these places. It will help you. But you remember this? The sons of Eli... They used the ark sort of like uh, Lucky Rabbit's foot. And uh, they took it into battle against the Philistines. Do you remember that? And the Philistines upset them and then captured the Ark of the Covenant. Can you imagine the very presence of God, the throne of God, captured by the enemies as they had been careless with it, etc.? And so remember, uh, the Philistines have a really funny story when their god, Dagon, gets turned over each night as the Ark of the Covenant resides in its presence. And they sort of can't figure out uh, why that's happening, but then they do figure it out. And um, they return the Ark to the Jewish people, and for about 20 or so years, it rests in the house of Adinabab in a place called what? Kirjath-Jerim, and that's important. Kirjath-Jerim, that's in 1 Samuel 6 and 7. And so he wants, when he becomes king, he wants to get that ark into Jerusalem, and he prepares a tent for it. His first attempt fails, and the ark, remember this, remains in a place called, or in the house of Obed-Edom, and that happens for about three months or so, and then David successfully brings uh, the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. You can see that in 2 Samuel 6. And um, so that's a whole history that sort of spans lots of the Old Testament. And the reason I tell you all about that is because that's what this psalm is about. The psalm is about praising the Lord uh, for his eternal dwelling. And that in the Old Testament was those places. So let's just look at it. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions. Now, time out. So there's an argument in the commentaries. Who wrote this psalm? Some people believe that just it was David. Other people believe it was his son Solomon talking about his father to remember David and all his afflictions. And David now certainly had a lot of afflictions. And what's fascinating about the life of David, isn't it, is that David was called a man after God's own heart, and yet lots of the afflictions were brought on by himself, his own sin, his own wandering eye, right? You remember this. And yet, again, I'm saying it again on purpose, he was a man after God's own heart. Why is that? I think one of the great reasons that God could still call David a man after his own heart after 
killing and adultery and lots of other things is that David kept really short accounts with God. When you study the life of David and you study the life of Saul, Saul sort of gets wiggly when he gets caught. (laughs) David, even uh, most of the time before he gets caught or as he is, he is found in true repentance. Saul, not so much. But what's interesting here is that God could handle all the afflictions that David brought upon himself, or God gave him afflictions to get him on the right path. And I wonder, you know, the Bible tells us to love the Lord through obedience, of course. But I got news for you folks. It doesn't always happen in my life. wonder if it doesn't always happen in your life. And you repent of it and you move forward. But here's the point. God can handle all the afflictions. And God can uh, understand and uh, uh, be compassionate with you in your afflictions if you need that. And if you've brought, uh, or if you need it in a certain way, God can afflict you or chasten you. And the good part about that is it means that you're a child of the king. I don't discipline your kids. You discipline your kids, and that's beautiful. So when we are disciplined or chastised by the Lord, ah, it's not something to shirk from. It's something to lean into because you're his kid. But anyway, Lord, remember David, whether this is David himself or Solomon, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. That's the ancient name for Jehovah. But anyway... Uh, he swore to the Lord, vowed to God, the Father, surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. Remember when David became king, they built him a great palace and he sort of felt guilty. Here I am living in this beautiful house and the Lord has no place for the ark. So he sends for Nathan. Do you remember this? Nathan's hears him out. David says, you know, I really think I need to build a house for the Lord. It's a passion of mine. And David says, wow, everything that's in your heart, just do it. Remember this? And uh, David must have gone to bed. Yay, wonderful. I'm going to do it. This guy's a prophet. And Nathan comes to him again after he's heard from the Lord and says, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I spoke too quickly. You shouldn't do that because you've been a man of war. You're going to have to have your son do that. And the funny part about David, or the great part about David, is he didn't whine and moan and complain. He just said, oh, okay. And so what he did was he did what he could. He got the wealth and some of the uh, instruments and collected them so Solomon could do it. And that's a great lesson for people in ministry. You don't always have to be the one. Maybe you could be the one behind the scenes. And David showed us that. Anyway, he wanted to go and build a house because it says in verse 5, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. That's what he's talking about, ark and temple. Behold, we heard of it. What? The ark. We heard of it, the ark in Ephrathah. That's how you say it. Anyway, who knows how to say it? Good. Okay. We found it in the fields of woods, which is probably Kirjath Jerem. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place. Now, remember in 1 Kings 8, do you remember this? Starting at verse 1, ending at verse 11. Verse 11 is the, you know, the ultimate of the verse, the high point of the, the chapter there. After Solomon was actually using these words in verses 8, 9, and 10 in his prayer as he dedicated the temple. Guess what happened? The glory of the Lord fills the temple. And this uh, uh, psalm, uh, he are the words he used, right? So let us worship uh, at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. Why? Because it's the presence of the Lord. I mean, one way you could uh, summarize the Bible is this. 
the presence of the Lord. Are we in the presence of the Lord? Remember, the people of God wouldn't even move unless the Lord's presence moved. And then, uh, 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 anyway, so, so we, we see that, and it goes all the way through the Bible. I mean, when we get to the end in the, the book of Revelation, I mean, we're not even going to need a son because he's going to be there with us and dwelling with us. It's all about the presence of the Lord. And so how could, not, how could we not shout for joy when we have the very spirit of Christ living within us as we are the temples or the temple of the Holy Spirit now? What a, what a beautiful thing. So David, or David, if you think it's David, or Solomon, if you think it's Solomon, in verse 10 here, start to quote and talk about 2 Samuel 7. If you don't know 2 Samuel 7, just go home tonight and read it, and then tomorrow read it again, and the next day read it again, 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7 on Old Testament is a big deal for you to learn. And it's in that chapter that God makes an eternal covenant with David and his line. And right here, the psalmist is reminding God of this covenant with David for your servant David's sake. Do not turn away the face of your anointed. Um, and some believe he's talking there about Solomon, who the one who's coming, who's going to actually build the house. Well, in verse 11, it says, the Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. God's eternal covenants, listen, even I'm this smart, are eternal. <laughs> An eternal covenant is eternal. It means it's forever. It means the thing that God promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is going to run out through the ages. It's going to play out through the ages. And here, the psalmist is talking about it. I'll set up your throne, the fruit of your body. And it is sort of talking here maybe about Solomon, but ultimately it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem, from the line of David. So verse 12, if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He's desired it for his dwelling place. Man, when you read that, you should jump up and down. I should jump up and down. I jump up and down when I read that. And the reason is, is because this is God's grace right here in front of your face. Why did God choose Israel? I don't know, but he did. And that's the point. That's grace, God's unmerited favor, his resource. And why did God choose Israel? Because he liked them better than everybody else so that he could promote them more than anyone else? No, the, it, all throughout the Old Testament, it tells us why God chose Israel so that Israel could be a light unto the nations, so that they could show forth God's love to all of us. God picked this little teeny little country. Of course God would pick a teeny little country. He uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, doesn't he? I've had two people in my life, I told you this before, maybe about a month ago, uh, Jan's dad actually asked me that one time, why Israel? And then I remember I was going over to witness to a man who was passing away. And I got all my evangelical texts out and I studied them up and I probably put them on a little index card and I walked in and he said, why did God choose Israel? <laughs> and that was a curveball. And yet, after we were done with that conversation through the, by the grace of God, talking about God's grace and choosing, it was as if a weight had come off this man because he started to understand grace. And so I think that's a thing that when you read this can re really be a blessing for all of us. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He's desired it for his dwelling place. Now, I've got to tell you, I used to live in Hawaii. Jan and I used to live in Hawaii. Hawaii is a pretty spectacular place. You can go to some places around Hawaii and they are spectacular. And uh, you can go to the cliffs and see all that stuff and go to the outer islands. And it's just gorgeous and magnificent. And I got to tell you, the Judean wilderness, 
I don't know. Not so pretty. I mean, upper Israel, Galilee, great. I mean, it looks like Pennsylvania. It's fine. It's beautiful. I'm not disparaging what God has done, but it's not Hawaii. And by the way, I prefer Colorado. I mean, it's just amazing. You go there and you see these mountains. It's it's glorious. It's majestic. Israel, beautiful, wonderful, not disparaging what God's done, but not this, in my opinion. And the point I'm trying to make is, Israel is special, listen, because God picked it. God didn't pick it because Israel was special. That's something to remember. And I think if you remember that and start to think about the, the glory of God and the grace of God, that makes a lot of sense. Anyway, you go on. This is my resting place, verse 14, forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Uh, I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation. And her saints shall shout aloud for joy. Therefore, I will make the horn of David grow. That speaks of strength. That speaks of offspring. He's talking about the Messiah. And I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. And here, I think, not only is he speaking of a lamp and lamps, for Solomon, but I think what he's saying is, again, that the Messiah will come and there will be a light unto the world. And his enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish, shine, or blossom. That's what this is talking about here. And now you've moved to Psalm 133. Psalm 133 is a short little psalm, but boy, you could speak of this for hours and hours. It's a song of ascents of David, of the 15 song of ascents. We know for sure that David wrote four of them, maybe some more. But listen to this. And a lot of people quote this, and I'm so happy to be preaching on this tonight. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now, let me tell you something here. What are the people doing right now? They're traveling from far away or near, but some far away, and they're traveling in caravans. Now, what happens when people get tired and hungry and dusty and hot? And what do they become? Grumpy or cranky. So in the near sense of this psalm, I think what he's talking about is, hey, folks, as we're traveling to the festivals, let's get along. <laughs> I think that's the immediate application of this. But of course, the Bible speaks to us farther or further about how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Now, brothers of the Old Testament or sisters of the Oh, or excuse me, the New Testament, I'm talking New Testament, brothers and sisters of the New Testament are part of a family. The Bible tells us in the first chapter of John, to those who receive Christ, to them he gives the right to become what? Children of God. Are you automatically a child of God when you're born? And the answer is no, you're not. You're made in the image and likeness of God and you have dignity and uh, respect by all, because you were made in the image and likeness of God. But you're not in the family of God spiritually. You get in the family of God when you surrender your life to Christ. And if you come into the family of God, the Bible tells us that it is good to be unified. But let's examine this for a minute. Let's examine this for a minute. Because here's my premise as I read about unity. I don't manufacture unity with other people. I already have it. And in Ephesians 4, it tells us to maintain unity. It actually says it there. So I don't think you go around and schedule things and do things just to manufacture unity. That makes no sense. You're unified because you have the very life of Christ pulsing in and out of your life, you already have unity and you're asked to maintain it. Like, listen, my kid lives in San Diego. I haven't seen him in a couple months. I've seen him maybe for a month in the last seven or eight months, right? 
But I don't have to fly out there and schedule things for him and I to maintain unity. When he comes back, Lord willing, in the middle of the summer, guess what? We're going to pick up just where we left off, love and respect. Why? Because we're family. I don't need to go out there every week and do something with him. I mean, I want to because I miss him. But are you getting the point? You ever, uh, um, uh, and I'm going to take you through the scriptures here in a minute. I got a great friend down the street, a pastor. His name's Jude Urso. Some of you love him, know him. I don't have to call Jude Urso every Monday morning and talk to him about every little thing on my schedule for me to maintain unity with Jude Urso. Here's what happens. When we talk to each, when we uh, need each other or need to run something by one another or maybe, you know, a couple times a year, meet for coffee. And we pick up right where we left off. Why? Because we already have unity. We're just maintaining it. Just like any friends. And here, look, see if you can follow along with me. Uh, go with me to the book of Ephesians. Uh, if you want to read more on this, I want to send you to an article by Ray Stedman. I love this article. Guess what the name of the article is? Unity, not union. Unity, not union. I, I commend you to it. It's in the third or fourth chapter of his book called Authentic Christianity. Uh, come here with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Go there. Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, verse 1, the prisoner of the Lord, besiege you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the... Keep the unity of the Spirit, not manufacture unity. You guys are glazing over over here. But I'm going to get to a point here in a minute. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit. Yes. Pastor Jude, down the street, he's full of the Holy Spirit. Hopefully I am too. And when I see him, we pick up right where we left off because we're already unified. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Right? Now go down to 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers for the equipping of the saints, work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till all we all come to the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the uh, stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. And we're unified in maturing in Christ. I think that's what that's talking about. We're unified in that. We want to mature. And the Bible tells us, doesn't it? In another place, I think it's Romans 12. I love this verse. Remember this verse. As much as is up to you and to me, be in peace with all men or women. And what's funny about that is, see, as much as it's up to me, does that guarantee peace with everybody? No, it does not guarantee peace with everybody. Because what if you, you can't hand or, you know, control the result? Now, why am I going over this? Because what do you do with somebody who's in church discipline? You believe in church discipline? Raise your hand. Do you believe in church discipline? Okay, what do you do when the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, put them out and treat them and give them over to Satan. In other words, treat him as an unbeliever. Is that being divisive? I was talking about this with my son Kai today on the porch, and he said, Dad, I think that's unifying. I said, what do you mean? He said, because you're trying to protect the flock. Hmm, that's interesting. So what do you think? If you... Uh, the Bible tells us to be unified in one respect, and the Bible says there's church discipline in another respect. So what do you do with church discipline? You just say, oh, Jimmy, I know you're hurting everybody in the church. Just keep doing it. We want to stay unified. 
No, of course not. Of course you wouldn't do that. Right? And uh, there's lots of other examples, well, you know, of, of what could happen in church discipline. But what happens, too, if a church down the street is teaching something that's false? Christian, church, down the street, teaching something false. Well, First John says, don't even let, don't let false church, uh, false teachers even into your house. Unified. Wait a minute, we're all to be unified here. I don't know about that. I don't think that's, that's too much of a blanket statement. You gotta remember, we're to maintain the unity of the life of Christ that resides in us. And yes, are there people that do worship different than us? People who wear suits to church? Wonderful. Wear a suit. Are there people that worship in a different style? Some sing hymns, some sing this, some do that, some do this. Or some uh, don't teach her 50 minutes to an hour, they teach 20 minutes. Are, are we to uh, be superior to them? Or are they to be lesser to us? No, that's the unity. They're, they're worshiping the Lord in the way that God has called them to. That's unity. They're Christians. They're born again. Wonderful. But you got to be careful when you're just screaming unity from the rooftops when you got something over here called church discipline. Is that unity or not? And when you got to be careful about screaming unity from the rooftops when you have false doctrine out there. What, are we to yoke ourselves up with false doctrine? I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, can we disagree on minor things and still be brothers in fellowship? Sure, brothers and sisters, of course. But when it comes to something that's essential, what do we do? Oh, unity, unity, unity. No, you can't do that. Guys, come up and talk to me after if that puts a burr in your saddle. Uh, but is unity good? Yes, it's wonderful. It's good and it's pleasant. When people are coming together in the Lord, it's beautiful, it's good, and it's pleasant for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard. Now who? The beard of who? The high priest. What did the high priest wear on his chest? He wore the stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. He had, and on his shoulders, he had them on his heart, the people of God on his heart. And I want you to see this. When he they anointed this high priest, and the anointing speaks of the Holy Spirit, it speaks of refreshing, it speaks of life, it speaks of something fragrant and beautiful and alive and lovely, and it would run down, and there would be all the people of God. Now see, there's unity. What do you mean? Well, what was the high priest getting people to do? getting them to worship. And I think when we come together, whether it be, okay, you, you like to sing a cappella hymns and we, we don't. I mean, but not that we don't like, but that's just not something we do. But today we're going to do that because you're here today and we're going to honor you and bless you here as our guest or if we come to your church and we're going to sing together and, be, and, and, and do that and worship. I think the oil and that unity that we're maintaining not manufacturing, is beautiful and pleasant. And isn't it that way? Yes? Well, you guys are looking at me like, why is he a big dealing this? <laughs> well, anyway, because I think lots of times this verse and this scripture is used out of context because it, there's a lot of other ramifications within the Bible that you have to think about in unity. Anyway, it has, it's on the beard of Aaron, and it run, runs down on the edge of its garment. It's like the dew of Hermon. And that's fascinating, because Hermon's all the way in the north of Israel, and it's a massive mountain. It's a big one, 10,000 feet or so. And up there, it's green and lush, and in the morning, there's dew. And dew is sort of the same as that oil, in a sense. It's a blessing of God. It represents fruitfulness and growth and life. And it's God's refreshing on his people. And that's what that's all about. And what's interesting, it says it descends upon the mountains of Zion. Well, that's interesting because Hermon and Zion are about 100 miles apart. So really, does the dew come on to Zion? No, but what he's saying is when people of different regions who have 
the Spirit of the Lord come together and worship, there's beautiful unity. I think that's what he's saying. So, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Why isn't that on our refrigerators? Right there. The blessing. If the Lord did nothing else for us, wouldn't you just like to write on your refrigerator and just know it's for you? Life forevermore because of the Lord. Wow. So there you go. And so you hear we move into Psalm 134, which is a little bit of a different psalm. Do you know that the temple priests and Levites didn't stop just, you know, at five o'clock? They didn't have a whistle like Fred Flintstone and leave. There actually had a turn, a, a shift of Levites and priests who maintained the temple areas at night. There was even a choir. And the choir wasn't just for the daytime, it was for the nighttime too. Isn't that beautiful? And so when you read this psalm, many people believe, look, Psalm 134, the last song of ascent, except for this time they're descending, they're leaving And what they see is, behold, look, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. As they're walking out with their families, they're looking up to the Temple Mount, and it's nighttime, and they see them still singing and blessing and preparing the instruments so people can worship the Lord and be in the courts and be uh, around the temple areas. Isn't that amazing? Behold, look at it, bless the Lord. Now, I'm a person that asks questions. It drives certain people, you know, my wife. But why? But why? I'm like a little kid. But why? And here, I don't want you to go by bless the Lord without understanding what bless the Lord means. You ever thought about that? How in the world is this guy going to bless the Lord? What? He blesses me. How would I Bless the Lord. Well, here's what I think it means. It means thinking well of God. You say, well, I'm here, aren't I? It's a Wednesday night service. I do think well of God. Really? Well, then what happens when uh, tough times come into your life? We say things like this. Well, Lord, I can't believe you've done this. Now, you might not say, Lord, I can't believe you've done it, but you're thinking it in your heart, and he knows it anyway. Or, Lord, uh, I deserve better than this. Stuff like that. You know we say these things. That's not blessing the Lord. Behold, he says, bless the Lord. What does it mean? Think well of God. Speak well of God. uh, Honor him in praise. And look, tell of his wonders. Tell of his wonders. Let let me just take a time out. has nothing to do with this psalm. You want to know how to witness at work? It's so easy, I can't even believe it. It's so easy, I can't believe it. You just pray yourself up, have an amazing work ethic, smile, and love people. Now, I know there's introverts in here, and you don't like to go out of your way. You don't have to go out of your way, but I guarantee you, 100% guarantee you, sometime, someday, maybe within two or three months of you working at this place, somebody's going to ask you, how are you so cheerful? And you're going to say this, do you really want to know? Now, if you ask them this, that's their fault. You can tell them. And so if you say, do you really want to know? And they say, yes, you got them. You got them. And why I'm saying that is you're honoring, you're blessing the Lord because you're going to tell people about the wonders of what he's done in your life. That's what you're going to do at school, at soccer, at football, at extracurricular, at music, wherever, classes, wherever you are, you're going to be able to share with people. I tell you this all the time, but at my work, it's so easy. I can't even believe how easy it is because when I get in the uh, elevator around four o'clock or whatever, if somebody's in that elevator, it's, it's like clockwork. I do it almost every day that somebody's in there. They say, ooh, like everybody says at the end, oh, boy, it's a tough day. And I say, 
What do you mean it's a tough day? I say it nice or whatever. Oh, is this a tough week? I'm so glad. And they say, what about you or something? And I say, oh, I'm going to my second job. And they go, oh, second job? Yeah, I'm a lawyer. Uh, what's, your, what's your second job? Well, I'm a pastor. And now you got them. So you can find ways. And the reason I'm telling you this is you're blessing the Lord when you do that. Because what is the Lord doing? He's trying, not trying, that's a bad way of saying it. He is getting men and women, boys and girls, into the family of God so that they'll live with him forever. And you're participating in that. And what you do, what do you do when you witness? You just brag on the Lord. You bless the Lord. So behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who by night stand in the house of the Lord. Remember, the choirs were up there. The priestly people were up there. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Now look, when I first went to a Calvary Chapel, I get in there. I've been in the Lutheran church 20 straight years. I'm standing there. Famous people invited me. I'm sort of just really, you know, just kind of doing my thing. First of all, it's in a theater. I'm not used to a theater. I'm used to do button up, da, 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 don't smile. If you crack a joke, you're out of here. And I go into this theater and they, the, the worship team comes out and all of a sudden I see people go like this. And I go, whoa, what's happening here? And I was sort of shaken there for a couple weeks as I went to church. But I want you to see that the posture of the people as they're walking to or from the temple is that they put their hands up. Now, am I asking you to put your hands up? No, I'm not asking you. You could keep your hands down. You could keep them in your pocket and you could have a heart that's abandoned to the Lord. No problem. No one's forcing you to put your hands up. You get that? But there's something about when you put your hands up, it's humbling. You ever felt that? I'm not getting you to do it. I'm, I'm just saying it took me a while for that. And one of the things that it does for me is it helps me to um, humble myself. But this was a posture that they not only, they prayed this way and they praised this way. As if they, look, it's as if they were saying, whew, let me receive the blessing. I'm going to bless you, Lord, but I know you're going to bless me and I'm here to catch it. And that's what it was about. And that's what they were doing. By the way, we had somebody leave the church because we, when we prayed up here one time, one of the people in the circle didn't close their eyes. And the person came right after church and, I mean, they were mad. And I'm like, well, tell me in the Bible where closing your eyes is and we'll, then we'll talk to the people about it. But here it seems as if they had eyes open and hands wide open. And that was the posture. And so the way on which I'm telling you is, or what I'm telling you here is, you can have any heart posture, but this one, oh, it, a humble heart as you lift up your hands in the sanctuary. Do you have to lift your hands up? No. Do you, should you have a humble heart? Yes. Should you have a teachable heart? Yes. Should you have a heart that wants to bless the Lord? Yes. And it says and stops here with the Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Zion. Look, as they're leaving, this is so cool. As they're leaving the Temple Mount, the last thing they hear is, the Lord bless you. Amazing. And that's the end of the Song of Ascents. Now we're going to tackle this last one. It has praise the Lord almost all the time here in Psalm 135. We're going to go on to Psalm 135. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him, O you servants of the Lord. You get the theme? You who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house, uh, of our God. And the priestly people, sometimes in the Old Testament, when they did their work, if you read the Old Testament, it says they were standing before the Lord. So he's probably talking to those. But anyway, praise the Lord for the Lord is good. I mean, you ever thought about that? Just to praise the Lord for the Lord is good. Do you ever wonder this? I do. Do you ever wonder this? What does it mean that the Lord is good? You ever thought about that? What does it mean that the Lord is good? The fact that God is good means that he has no evil in him. His intentions and motivations always good. He always does what is right. Now, let me say that again. He always does what is right. Let me say this one twice. And the outcome of his plan is always good. You want me to say that again? 
And the outcome of his plan is always good. Because sometimes when we pray, we sort of pray like, Lord, you had no idea what you were doing on that one. Come on, you know it's true. When the things don't go your way or my way, Lord, I can't believe this. But the thing thing is, is that his plan is always good and there's nothing unpleasant, evil, or dark in God. God's goodness extends from his nature to everything that he does, Psalm 119.68. And I'm going to prove it to you by giving you a scripture. The Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Don't you love that verse in Psalm 100? So the Lord is good. Praise the Lord. Just why don't you do this in your prayer time tomorrow? In your journal, write the Lord is good and then just mark down how you know that the Lord is good. Wouldn't that be a great way to start off the morning tomorrow? Praise him for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name for it's pleasant. Man, when you become a saved, born-again person, you can't help but sing. It just comes flowing out. For the Lord has chosen Jacob or Israel for his special treasure. Wow, beautiful. For I know that the Lord is great. He's not only good, he's great. And our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth. Now watch. He's just picking up off all the gods. (laughs) Isn't Jupiter in heaven, the Jupiter God, heaven rules the heavens? And in earth, in the deep places, isn't that Pluto? And in the seas, in all the deep places, isn't there a God called Neptune? He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, the rains. He makes lightning for the rain. You know who he's striking at right there? Baal, the Canaanite god, which was the god of weather. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. He destroyed the firstborn of Egypt. Remember, he destroyed all those different gods that Egypt had, both of man and beast. He sent signs and wonders into the midst of you, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants, He defeated many nations, slew mighty kings, and he slew Sihon, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. And you could read Numbers 21 and Deuteronomy 3, and you'll see that that's real history. Now, I got to take another time out. What has the Lord done in your life? And what you know, listen, I don't know about you, but I'm fickle and I can't remember stuff and I forget. But boy, if you write it down and you go back and read it, it just does something to your heart. And the reason I'm telling you this is in your own life, you could make this fact book of Psalms that shows to you how God has been so great to you. Now, God is great independent of you. I mean, you get what I'm saying? He's great no matter what. But he's done great things in your life, and you could put those down and go back, and in the mornings you could think about them and talk about them, and you could bless the Lord for these things. That's what this psalmist is doing. He's recounting history. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, the first five or eight verses, Paul tells us that Christianity is based on facts. This is not just something we're pulling out of the wind, just sort of so, you know, we can come here on Sundays and come here on Wednesdays. We serve a resurrected Jesus. And it's a fact. And here he's giving the facts about how good the Lord was in the Old Testament. You could make your own Psalm 135. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your fame, O Lord, throughout all generations, for the Lord will judge his people and will have compassion on his servants. I love this one. The Lord is great because he's a judge. Now, do you think about that much? Judges we usually try to shy away from. I mean, I don't really want to be in front of the judge unless, of course, I'm getting paid for it, but I don't want to be there my own self, right? That's sort of funny. But when you think of God as judge, it makes life make sense. Because there's judgment, and that's good. And not only that, but he's a compassionate one, and he has compassion on his servants. That makes God great, and I love it. And so do you, because 
These other gods, they didn't care about their people. Well, here, even now he goes into idols. God is greater than any of the idols. The idols of the nation, silver and gold, they're works of men's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes they have, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who, I want you to circle this. Those who make them idols are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. This tells you that you become what you worship. And here's the funny part. If you've made something an idol, look what it says. You read it again. It means you come down to its level. Everything that's an idol outside of God makes us go this way down, not this way up. It's amazing. You become what you worship. And oh, we worship the Lord. Bless the Lord, O house of Israel. Bless the Lord, O house of Aaron. Bless the Lord, O house of Levi. And then watch. You go, well, wait a minute. This psalm's not for me. This is for Jewish people. Watch this. You who fear the Lord, that's you, that's me. Bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord out of Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. Uh, He's not distant, this uh, psalm tells us. And he is personal, and he will help in time of trouble. And for that, we can say, praise the Lord. Now here, here's what we're going to do, because we haven't done it in a while. (laughs) We're going to ask Kelly and maybe somebody else, I don't know. And she's going to come up and play a a hymn or a song, I'm not exactly sure, a worship song, a a piano piece. And what I want you to do is, I put communion, or we put communion on the back table. Now, I'm not very clear when I tell you this. Last time, my wife was looking at me like, what should I do? You're going to take communion yourself. I'm not going to come up here and go through 1 Corinthians 11 or anything like that or the institution of the Lord's Supper. We just know that who is able to take communion? Anyone here who has given their life to Jesus Christ and is part of the body of Christ. Is that unity or what? And you are welcome to take communion. So you're going to listen to the song. You're going to go back. You're going to pick up your cup. It's one of those things you peel back twice. And you're going to take communion yourself. And then at the end of that, I'll come up here and we'll pray together and we'll go go on our way, okay? So that's what we're going to do right here. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for these psalms and thank you that... Um, that uh, you've given us these words that are so amazing to us here in this time, uh, even though they've been written so long ago, Lord, they're alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. They don't come back void, your word. And so we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.